Good evening. Is anything happening tonight? That's a joke for Brother Jeff McDaniel. Um, <laughs> uh, he talked to me a little bit before service. I think the only person with more weight on their shoulders tonight than Patrick Mahomes or Jalen Hurts is the preacher in the pulpit when the Super Bowl is about to start. So bear with me. Bear with me. Yes, just in mere minutes, kickoff is about to start on the most watched sporting event in all of American culture, right? The Super Bowl is a huge deal. And I like watching it. I like watching football games. I like watching sports in general, especially enjoy watching pretty much any sport being played live. The most exciting live sporting event that I have ever been at, and it just lives in my memory forever, is an amazing softball championship game that Chloe Mayberry played in that I was able to watch live one time. I'm telling you, I have to ask her for the details. It was one of the greatest moments in my life. I was so excited. Uh, it was so amazing to watch them come and win that game. Uh, and I, so I just love, I love sports, being a part of that, being a part of the excitement is so fun. But with all that said, and I want you to hold your gasps, I am not sports material, okay? I, like I said, hold your shock. I'm not sports material. Uh, I have never been athletic. I have never had the desire to play sports. My reflexes aren't good. I'm not good at reading people's movements and reacting to it. And so I've made my peace with this, right? It's taken a long time and a lot of counseling. But even though the big leagues were always a long shot, I don't think I'm ever going to play in the pros, right? I'm just not sports material. I'm sure if I found a sport that I like and worked at it, I could improve my current level of proficiency, which is absolute zero. But even then, I'm never going to be one of the best, because I was just not made for sports, I don't think. I believe some people are made for certain things, and that, you know, some people are really great at certain sports, or certain uh, creative outlets, or maybe at certain jobs and careers that people are just made for. It's just their calling, it's what they were meant to do, and there's something really to be said for knowing and understanding your own strengths and weaknesses. And so the question of tonight's lesson is this, are you heaven material? Are you heaven material? Are you cut out for this whole Christian thing in general as we sit here on this Sunday night? I would be surprised if this is a new question for most of us sitting here tonight because it's likely one that you've asked yourself before. It's almost ironic that really the most likely people to ask that kind of questions would be baptized believers, right? faithful attendees, people that are really trying their hardest to live the Christian life faithfully are usually the ones that ask, am I ever going to make it? Am I really cut out to live this life as laid out in the Bible? And we often question the validity of our faith. Now again, that doesn't mean we question the faith, right? the truth of doctrine, the truth of the Bible. I think most of us are totally convinced of that. We don't really question the existence of God or the fact that he's righteous. We believe that he is and that he is good. But the problem is maybe he's just a little bit too good, right? He's so good. We read the Bible. He's so perfectly righteous. And it's in light of that goodness that we start to doubt whether we have any chance of making the cut in this Christian life that we're living our thoughts of the judgment day and its potential events kind of play out as something of a toss-up, right? A possibility of salvation. But we have this nagging feeling that we just don't quite meet the heaven standard for the type of person who God wants to hang around with for all of eternity. 
In some ways, we can imagine a scene not unlike one in the song, What Will Your Answer Be? We know that song and we sing it quite often, where we're standing before God at the crossroads of heaven and hell and hearing God look at us and say, why should I let you in? What qualifies you to enter into the joys of heaven? What would your answer be? If God's asking you that question, what would your answer be on the judgment day? What have you done to solidify your place in the book of life? Are you really faithful enough? Have you attended enough worship services? Have you been a faithful Bible reader, a daily Bible reader? Have you prayed as you ought to pray? I think if you're honest with yourself and you read the Bible's descriptions of the glory of heaven and the beauty of the eternal city and about the type of people who will be there, then you know that you don't measure up to that standard. You don't meet that qualification. You really aren't righteous enough to be heaven material. That's just the fact of the matter. It's for that reason that so many Christians struggle with assurance of their salvation. They just don't have any kind of confidence that they're truly going to be saved. They live their lives attempting to walk a path that leads to heaven, but they're constantly wondering if they have really done enough to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Not to mention that awful three-letter word that rears its head so often in our lives, sin. The sin that we know about that no one else knows about. The bitter struggle that we have with an action or an attitude that goes against the will of God. And sure, we repent of it, but we're starting to worry that we're coming up on that 70 times 7 forgiveness limit that Jesus talked about, right? A little bit out of context there. But we do worry about whether or not we can be forgiven of these sins that we struggle with. How can you know about your eternal status? How can you know for sure What do you hang your hat on spiritually to know that you are going to be saved on that last day? The Bible says that we can know, that we can have assurance. Uh, Just earlier, Mike read 1 John chapter 5. It says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. That sounds a little arrogant. How could we ever say, you know, I I know that I'm going to go to heaven. I know that I'm going to be saved. Yet the Bible says we can know that we have eternal life. The problem is that our view of our own salvation is often very, very fragile. We know and speak against those who hold a perverted doctrine like once saved, always saved. The idea that if you are ever right with God, if you're ever saved, it's impossible to lose that status, right? We don't believe that. We believe the New Testament warnings about the danger of drifting and falling away. We, we know those verses. We understand. But is the alternative to once saved, always saved, really and truly once saved, barely saved is that the reality of our lives we're just barely saved does our salvation hang by a a, a little thread each and every day that we're in constant danger of losing or are we constantly waffling every day between a saved and a condemned position hoping to god that when our time comes to die that we'll be on this side of the equation so that we have a chance to barely make it into heaven on that last day It's a miserable way to live. That's a a miserable way to live your spiritual life and think about eternity. And it's based on a fundamental misunderstanding. Okay, There's a misunderstanding going on here. If you believe that salvation is based on an interview with God on the last day about why you've earned your spot in heaven, 
you're going to react with one of two terrible errors in this conversation. You'll either, one, trick yourself into believing that you actually are good enough to go to heaven and that your righteousness is actually sufficient to earn the reward of eternal life, or two, you will be honest and self-aware enough to know that you can never perfectly live up to the standard of Jesus and thus you will never have any assurance that you can be saved because you think I'll never be good enough I'll never match up to what I'm supposed to be recently I've done a couple of lessons about mental toxins especially cultural ones that creep into the church and cause major problems and this lesson is different because I want to do a lesson that's actually encouraging versus discouraging which is what a lot of that tends to be But yet this mindset is just as dangerous of a mental toxin as any of those things out there when it comes to the success and the joy of Christians in our church today. We're going to be faithful, fruitful workers in God's kingdom. We need to know that our labor is not in vain, right? It's not all for nothing. We need to know that heaven will be our home. The peace that passes all understanding isn't too peaceful if we don't have any confidence and what lies ahead of us. But you will never have that peace if your confidence and salvation is built upon yourself. You will never truly have that peace. Those who believe that they are not good enough to go to heaven need to be encouraged. And if you're here tonight and you don't believe you're good enough to go to heaven, you need to be encouraged, but not because you've necessarily misunderstood your position, okay? But let's talk about that. Here's why you need that encouragement. The first reason why you are heaven material, even if you don't feel like it, is because you're a sinner. And so am I. It sounds counterintuitive, but it's true. We remember the story of the so-called rich young ruler, right? This man that came to Jesus and was asking him what he needed to do to ensure his eternal salvation, right? He wanted to make sure. What can I do to make sure that I will have eternal life? And we remember Jesus telling him to follow the commandments, which he had done, and then being told to sell all of his possessions, which he was not willing to do. But do you remember how that conversation started? Look in Luke 18. It says, now a certain ruler asked him, saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good, but one, that is God. Jesus was always ready to give extremely unexpected answers to what seemed like relatively simple questions, right? This man asked a simple question, and Jesus' response is, why do you call me good? Was Jesus good? Oh, he was very good. The rich young ruler was correct. Jesus was very, very good. And there's even a bit of irony in Jesus' answer because he says there is none good but God, and we know what? Jesus is God, right? He is the son of God. So yes, the rich young ruler had his finger on the pulse. So why did Jesus say what he said? It makes you wonder if there was a person in this conversation who had overestimated their own righteousness. You wonder if the rich young ruler in some way actually thought that as a faithful observer of the law of Moses since youth, he was actually good. He was righteous, right? He had attained to something. And he, a man whom Jesus loved so dearly, ended up going away sorrowful when he learned he wasn't actually as good as he thought that he was. If you were under the impression that you were a mostly good person, 
or someone who can easily achieve eternal life by your own merit, then reading the Bible will really quickly deflate your ego, right? You're going to learn quickly that that is simply not the case. You have Paul in Romans 3 quoting the Psalms, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. Or later in the chapter in verse 23, when he makes the bold claim, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In 1 John chapter 1 and verse 8, the Apostle John says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. He's saying we, talking about Christians and the apostles, right? We have sin. And it's a lie to say that we are any other way. In his lesson this morning, Brother John talked about the idea of spiritual bankruptcy, right? A total lack of ability to absolve the sin that you find yourself a slave to. And the fact is that the gospel is not going to help you until you realize that that is the position that you are in. That is your place as a human. The gospel is a message of God's grace towards sinners. And I want you to remember this. Grace is not about turning decent people into good people. It's about turning sinful people into holy people. And that is very different. It's very different. That is the mission of the gospel. I've heard a common thought about baptism. When you talk to people that are considering being baptized, and it goes something like, I'm going to get my life in order. I'm going to learn just a little bit more. I'm going to get myself fixed, and then I'm going to get baptized. If I may be blunt, with all due respect, what in the world is the baptism for? (laughs) Why are you going to get yourself fixed? Why are you going to perfect yourself before you step into the waters of baptism? Now, this is speaking in generalities, of course, because please count the cost of discipleship. Think about that first step. Be convicted and convinced. But if you are able to become perfect before you get baptized, what do you need the blood of Jesus for? That's what it's for. That's what the job is. I want you to imagine the most morally upstanding person in the world. Okay, Just imagine this imaginary, moral, wonderful person. A person who's given millions of dollars to charity. A person who's offered their time to help the needy and destitute. A likable person, a funny person, an honest person. Think about this person and realize that if admission to heaven is based on the merit of human morality, then that person you imagine would still burn in hell for eternity if left to their own devices. Because salvation cannot be earned by human morality. You cannot do it. You will not do it. No one will pass through the pearly gates on the account of just being a better person than someone else. It's irrelevant. It doesn't matter whether you're better than so and such over here. You're still hellbound if left to your own devices. And if that sounds depressing and despondent to you, then you haven't grasped the reality of the concept. It really is liberating because I don't want you to misunderstand me. I don't mean that you have a license to sin because none of us have that. I don't mean that you aren't responsible for your sin and for your mistakes. But it does mean that your eternal fate does not completely rest on your ability to be perfect. It doesn't. That is not where your eternity lies. What is it resting on then? If it's not on me, if it's not on my morality or my perfection, what is it resting on? Well, that's the second reason why you're heaven material tonight, even if you don't feel like it, because God has offered and given you grace as a Christian. Think about Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God not of works lest anyone should boast. 
You cannot save yourself. And let me repeat it one more time. You cannot save yourself. You are unable to absolve the sins of any human, including yourself. If you are going to be saved, God will have to be the one that saves you. Now, before you make like the Galileans from the lesson this morning and want to throw me off a cliff, let me say a few things, right? The Bible teaches us that we must obey the gospel, that we must be baptized, that we must bear the fruit of Jesus as we are in Jesus. But none of that means that we at any point save ourselves. Submitting to Jesus and being baptized does not mean that I have performed a work that is worthy of earning my own salvation. For one, man, what an easy way to earn eternal life, right? Getting wet, taking a dip in the water. It doesn't merit that based on its difficulty. But what we see in the Bible is that baptism is a saving work. But whose work is it? It's the work of God. Baptism is the work of God. And that's exactly what Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 2, verse 11 through 13. He said, in him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised you from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he is made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Question, when does a sinner become eligible and full for the joys of heaven and the inheritance of the children of God. It's when they're baptized, right? When Upon baptism, upon coming up out of those waters, before they do the first work of the kingdom, while they're still a newborn babe in Christ, they have punched their ticket for an eternal home in heaven. Does that strike you as odd? I think in the Bible, Jacob had to work a lot of years to get his reward of the wife that he wanted, right? We remember that story. College students have to work between 4 and 12 years to get their, uh, their degree, their master's, their PhD, or doctorate. And yet in Christianity, the most important reward on offer is given to you as you enter the door of the kingdom. That's the first thing that you have. Yes, your salvation is assured. This only works because of the love and grace of God. That's the only way that we can make this make sense. And those of us who have been Christians for a long time would do well to note the warnings of the older brother of the prodigal son and those that complained about the 11th hour vineyard workers. We have not reached tenured status, right? We, we haven't reached some kind of higher, planer level. We are not where we are today because of ourselves. Our growth and our salvation is the work and gift of God, and we have no grounds for boasting. It's not of ourselves. It's what God has done for us, and that's humbling, but it's also comforting. Don't make God's grace a dirty word. We, we get so afraid because the denominational world at large has taken grace and twisted it and prodded it and maybe turned it into something it's not, but we can't make grace a dirty word. We can't run from grace because grace is the only hope that we have. It's all that we have is grace. Don't be afraid to relish the fact that God is merciful and abounding in grace toward those who are in his Son. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16 says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 
Come boldly, right? Be bold. Believe. Believe that grace is yours, mercy is yours, and that God loves you. The final point in the lesson is yours tonight. The third reason that you are heaven material is that God wants you, the Christian, his child, to be saved. God wants you to be saved. No matter how pervasive the picture is in today's world, God is not sitting on the edge of his throne waiting for you to misstep so that he can instantly, spontaneously condemn you to an eternity in hell. He's not that God. That's not who he is. But so many Christians live under the impression that we spend every day on the razor's edge of damnation. Brother Glenn Colley, in a, in a great lesson talking about Christian peace, said that so many of us just imagine our day spent oscillating between saved and lost and saved and lost and saved and lost. That's how we think that our life goes. And so that, again, we just hope that at the last breath we land on the right side. That's all, all the hope that we have. And we worry that otherwise God's going to look at the entirety of our Christian life and say, oh, I'm sorry, one sin here right before you died, you're going to hell. Is that really the kind of peace that Christians are supposed to have? Is that how we're supposed to look at God and, and have any kind of assurance in any real sense? But that's not the God that we serve. We serve the God that Paul spoke about in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 3. He said, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always and in every prayer of mine making requests for you with all joy. For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. This is my God and your God. He has started something in us. Individually, yes. As a congregation, yes. Here at Center Grove, he started something and he is dedicated to the completion of our journey from Gainesboro, Tennessee to the throne room of heaven. That's the God that we serve. That is what he is working towards. And people have got it mixed up and start to think that God is our enemy, right? No, we have one of those. His name is Satan, right? He's the devil that walks around like a roaring lion seeking to devour us. But God is not our enemy. And if we are in Christ and sincerely giving our best to his kingdom, then God is for us, right? And if God is for us, it doesn't matter who's against us. It doesn't matter anybody that's in opposition to us. That is the only source of peace in this world that you can really and truly hang your hat on at the end of the day. But what about our sin? We talked about the sin problem, the sin in our lives, the sin that makes us question whether or not we're ever going to be able to do this. The sins we continue to commit even after we find ourselves in Christ. Look at 1 John chapter 1. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Go back to the previous slide, Chris. I'm sorry. I think I put that one on accident. As Christians... We repent of the sins that we commit. We know that sin is an affront to God. We know that we have to beg God's mercy when we do things that go against his will. But if you knew every sin that you committed on a day-to-day, -day, weekly basis without even knowing that you've done it, I think you would be staggered. 
We sin more than we know. We can't repent of every sin because we sin without even realizing that we've done it. It's why David in Psalm 19 asked God to search the depths of his heart if there's any hidden imperfection and forgive him of that. Work me towards correcting those things. Well, what does 1 John tell us? It tells us that if we walk in fellowship with God, then the blood of Jesus that cleansed us in baptism is set to continual wash. We are continually being washed of our sins. Our sins will be daily forgiven, and we can sleep well knowing that we are right with the Lord. And yet many people don't really see this as a comfort because they assume that the phrase, if we walk in the light, and walking in the light essentially amounts to perfect living, right? Well, if I'm a perfect Christian, then God will consider me in fellowship with him. But that doesn't follow the logic of the text, even a little bit. The logic of the text says, if we walk in the light and have fellowship with him, then he will forgive us our what? Sin. Where's the sin coming from? We're walking in the light. Even those that walk in the light will commit sin, and those sins will be forgiven by the blood of Jesus. That's the confidence that we can have. Walking in the light cannot mean never sinning based on the logic of the text. Rather, it means someone who dying to self every day hating and mortifying their own sin, continues to cling to the cross of Jesus to the best of their ability. And Jesus forgives that person. Psalm chapter 32. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. The verse does not say blessed is the man who does not sin. The verse says blessed is the man who has been forgiven of the sin that he most certainly has. That is the blessedness that God offers to us. Jesus has not saved you so that you can live your life with no confidence in your salvation. He wants you to live with every belief that heaven will be your home and to work towards being the kind of person that will love spending eternity with him forever. It's already been decided is the thing. Because if we are truly in Christ with him as our salvation, then the outcome is already figured out. It's done. Romans chapter 8 verse 1, a verse that gives me hope a lot of times when I don't have a lot of other hope to turn to. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation leaves room for how much condemnation? None. If you are in Christ, then it's already settled. You're already saved. It's a decisive claim And it changes our view of that judgment day scene from the beginning of the lesson. If God was to look you square in the eyes and ask you why he should allow you to enter heaven, the only acceptable answer is because I am covered in the blood of Jesus Christ. Because I have died to myself and I have put my faith and my hope in him and his promise. My admission is paid for by the death and the resurrection of the Son of God. It's the only acceptable answer for why we will have a place in heaven. In other words, Jesus is the only answer. And in fact, if you follow the logic of the song I mentioned, you know at the end it says, He will your answer be. Jesus is the only answer. Not your own works or your own righteousness, but His. And so the only question that remains for your assurance tonight is one of location or one of fruit? Those are the only really two questions that we can ask. If you are not in 
Christ. If you're not located in Christ tonight, which you become located there through baptism into Jesus Christ. If you are not in Christ, you can have no assurance besides the assurance that you will spend eternity in a devil's hell. Outside of Christ, that's the only option. But if you're baptized into Christ, everything changes. Now you can know the peace of God, not because you're perfect, but because he is. And it's on his account that you can look forward to a home in heaven. If you are a Christian, if you are in Christ, then the judgment day will ultimately amount to a fruit inspection. Jesus was a fruit inspector when he walked the earth, and he'll be one on the last day. He will look because he said those who are in him will do what? Bear fruit. They will bear fruit. What fruit? The fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of righteous works for the kingdom. The fruit of other disciples added to the kingdom. If you are not bearing fruit, it's cause for concern, right? Not concern that you should say, well, I guess I'm hellbound, but concern in what can we do to help? What do we need to change? What do we need to look to? How can we put our hope in Jesus so that that fruit will be there on that day and Jesus will say, he's in me, he's bearing fruit from the vine, eternity with me is his. So repent, cling to Jesus. If you find yourself in sin tonight, live the Christian life, not in fear of retribution, not in fear of, 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 of a razor's edge of going to heaven or hell, but with expectant hope, knowing that heaven can be our home, and thus we're willing to work for the kingdom that will endure forever and ever. You are heaven material. If you're here tonight, you are heaven material, not because of you, but because of Jesus. Hold your head high. By the grace of God, we can look to the future with a smile on our face and truly say, the best is yet to come.